Good morning, everyone. This morning we will be reading from chapter uh, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7. Uh, that can be found on page 304 in the Blue Bibles that are located in front of you. If you do not own a Bible of your own, please feel free to take one of these home with you. Hear the word of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. Thus says God's word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, your mighty word. God, we thank you for the promises contained in it. We thank you for the truth that permeates it, God, that, that all truth for us as believers is, is discerned through your word. And so we thank you for that. God, we pray that as we look into it, even just one single verse, and even that for the second week in a row, God, we pray that you would let it be for us a mine of your wisdom that we can go in and extract the, the, the beautiful treasure of your truth, God. God, I pray that in order to do this, you would prepare our hearts, that you would prepare our minds, our spirits, our ears to hear. God, that we would be those that you spoke of in the book of Revelation who have ears to hear what the Spirit is saying to the churches. Lord, I pray just as importantly that you would prepare me, God, that you would assist me and that you would strengthen me and empower me, Lord, to say only what you're saying, to not add to or take away from anything that you've said, um, but God, to present your word in all of its clarity and all of its life-transforming power. And I ask all of this in the name of the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. Amen. You can be seated. So glad that you're here today. Um, as I often do before I jump into this text, I want to remind you of a couple of things. We've got a, uh, a couple of exciting things that are happening here at the church that we want you to be aware of. Um, on March 10th, um, I know we, we talk about these all the time, and I know you guys all enjoy them, so we've decided to have one of our potlucks. It'll happen at 5.30 at night, and to, in order to know that we have enough food, we've put a, a sign-up sheet out there on the table, and if you can just let us know that you're coming, what you're bringing, we'll make sure that there's plenty for you to eat. And if you're new here to Northridge, maybe only been coming a little bit, we want to invite you to uh, to come and don't bring anything. Just come and enjoy the, the fellowship, and we would love to have you Secondarily, and also this is primarily for you guys that are new to Northridge, um, we are having uh, our members class in, in uh, March. That will also be on the 10th and the 17th. They always happen in two sessions. They happen at 8.30 a.m. before church begins. Um, we get we start right at 8.30 and we get done uh, usually by about 9.45, so you have plenty of time to get in here and get some coffee and, and get your seat. But uh, uh, we have a sign-up sheet for that as well. We had one last month, and many of you were sick and out of town, and that so you weren't able to either begin it or complete it, and so we want you to be able to do that. So uh, March 10th and 17th, also there's a sign-up sheet, and so don't delay if you'd like to... Uh, uh, you know, do uh, become an official member of Northridge Life, then we would love for you to do that. There's a lot of very good reasons for you to do that. We encourage you to do it. And so um, if you would just sign up on that sign up sheet and we'll be in touch with you and tell you how to prepare for that. Um, well, I want to get into the scriptures today. As I mentioned in my prayer, 
we did not drift any further than we did last week in the text. We were going through the book of Proverbs. We're examining the book of Proverbs over the next uh, several weeks, several months, and we're stuck here on Proverbs 1-7. I, I, I preached from here last week and, and did some things with that, but there were some things that I did not get to say, and I felt like they were important enough to come back to Proverbs chapter seven, uh, chapter 1, verse 7. And, and the reason I did that is because um, Proverbs 1, 1 through 7 is the introduction that Solomon gives to the book of Proverbs. And in this introduction, he, he concludes this introduction like this. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. And so since Proverbs is a book of wisdom and 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 showing us what the Lord's wisdom looks like, um, he, he talks about how that it begins with the fear of the Lord. And so I, I figured that we should examine this before we even get really started in Proverbs. We should examine this and make sure we understand it fully. So, as I say, we're continuing to examine this last verse of this introduction. And we have seen, when we talk about the fear of the Lord, we've seen that what that means, uh, the way we would define that, is a deeply reverential uh, you know, honoring approach to God. It's to stand in awe of God. It's to take Him very seriously by assigning to Him in our hearts all the worth that He is due. For unbelievers, it, and the fear of the Lord applies to both unbelievers and believers. For unbelievers, the scripture is clear. It means a fully justified terror of God's holiness. It's a terror of the judgments that will certainly spring from that holiness. But for believers, it's slightly different. For believers, it means the fear of displeasing him because he has loved us, not because of any merit in us, but because of his own abundant grace. He's loved us. It entails the pain uh, when we imagine what life would be like without him as our very center, as he sustains us. And so the fear of the Lord applies to unbelievers and believers in slightly different ways, but it still applies to all of us. And so this text we used last week and this week, it introduces Proverbs by telling us that the fear of the Lord is where knowledge begins. And we spent a lot of time talking about that last week. But also remember, we said this last week as well, that before in Psalms and later on in Proverbs as well, um, we see that the fear of Yahweh is also not just where knowledge originates, but where wisdom originates. And, and remember what we said that Solomon is saying here. He's saying that we cannot know anything in truth or as it is to be properly known without beginning in a right covenantal relationship with God. And moreover, we cannot make proper use of any knowledge we might gain anywhere in the world, whether that's at home, at school, or even here at church, apart from the fear of the Lord. We can learn some things, but we'll never know how to use those things if we don't begin and stay within the fear of the Lord. So what does that mean? It means that there are things in this world that are demonstrably true. 
in the sciences, etc. There are things that are true in biology or astronomy or any of the other ologies. There are things that are true. And so you might push back and say, well, we can know those things even if we don't fear the Lord. But here's what you got to understand. Those things are never never understood fully or rightly if we don't revere God to the uttermost. We will start with right information that will lead us in wrong directions if we don't start with the fear of the Lord. Amen? So you may have obtained some knowledge of how the world works when you go to college, but you will never, ever begin to know what it all means. You'll never know what the, what the big reason, the big purpose behind all of this is. Everything that constitutes life, the experience of life for us, you'll never understand what it all means without the Bible's instruction, without the covenant with Christ, without the fear of the Lord. And this absolutely is a hill that true Christians must be willing to die on absolutely a a hill we must be willing to die on because we see it as unreservedly true and and why do i say that because today as you know you live life in the world you see that we have an epidemic of people who are alleged believers maybe not true believers but alleged believers who capitulate constantly to the culture in regards to things like the origin of life and what constitutes legitimate human sexual identity or the nature of so-called social justice and many other things and instead of fearing the lord though they call themselves christians instead of fearing the lord what they truly fear is the frown of society See, the fall of mankind, if we look back at Genesis 3, was predicated on our first parents in the Garden of Eden doing what? They partook of which tree? See, it was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you might say, well, isn't it good to know what is good and what is evil? I spend most of my child rearing years trying to teach my children the difference between good and evil, right and wrong. But the knowledge of good and evil, this is what I'm talking about, about all knowledge comes from the fear of the Lord. The knowledge of good and evil is only good for us if it is defined by God alone. When it is not Defined by God when we try to independently and subjectively make the determination of what is good and what is bad, what is good, what is evil. It results in rebellion against God's revealed wisdom. Think about that scene again in Genesis 3. The serpent tempts Eve, the woman, to take that first bite with these words. Genesis 3, 5. For God knows when you eat of it. Your eyes will be opened and you will be like God. And how do we know she'll, uh, how, how does he tell her she's going to be like God? Because she's going to know good and evil. What was she tempted to do? God had already told her what was good. The garden is good. Everything he created was good. He looked at it all in the end of Genesis 1. And he said, it's very good. But she, she was tempted to make a new definition. The, the, God had said that the creation was good and the tree was something to be avoided, to stay away from it, to not touch it. That, the garden was good, the tree was evil for her. 
But what was she tempted to do but reject the fear of Yahweh, to reject what he had said, his definitions, and set herself up as her own God, understanding now by her own definitions what is good and what is evil. Many will ask, well, how can God be just by condemning us all under the law and under judgment for what our ancient ancestors did. But hold on. Take an honest look at your life. You may be 20, 30, 40, 50, 60 years old. Look at your own life. And if you do, probably for most of us, if you look at the last week of your life or maybe the last 24 hours or perhaps the last 15 minutes of your life, You'll have to confess that every single one of us, myself is, am, am not excluded from that, every one of us has followed in the footsteps of Adam and Eve, and we have multiple times selfishly and independently defined for ourselves what is good is evil, and most of the time we call good evil and evil good. Anybody else here that can identify with that reality? Humanity's insistence on devouring the fruit that God has forbidden has led to a pervasive moral relativism in our culture. It, it is a result of a deeper cosmic treason and a departure from the fear of the Lord that we're discussing today. And nobody sums this up better in Scripture than the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 1 when he's discussing the, the, the ripple effects of the fall of man. And he says this, he says, Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools. And this is where we find ourselves in our fallen state before we're rescued and restored by Christ's salvation but among the great blessings of the gospel, it's this. It's that we can return to a state of true knowledge, true wisdom, which is only found in right relationship with God through Christ. And who is this Christ? Well, Colossians 2, 3, the Apostle Paul again defines him as this. It's the Christ in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. What promise there is in Christ to know Christ is to be truly wise. And this is true regardless of your academic attainments. It's true regardless of your scientifically measured IQ. I have met hardy old peasant saints in third world countries on mission trips who have learned the secrets of a meaningful life and the depths of the riches of Christ's love and mercy it is this knowledge that for them exceeds the value of gold and silver in their lives. It is the pearl of great price, which was worth forsaking everything else they could have had in this world. During the incarnation, in order to save our souls from destruction, it was necessary for Christ to become like us, for the divinity to take on humanity. And yet he did so without our pestilent sin clinging to himself. How did he, re, re, uh, how did he attain, rather, the wisdom to answer doctors in the temple and question them at 12 years old? 
I don't even want to tell you what I was thinking about at 12 years old, but it certainly wasn't the deep theological mysteries of life. How did he so frequently silence the conniving uh, Pharisees and do it so completely? Well, let's take a look. Everybody open your Bibles again. Uh, and if you have a blue Bible, this will be on page 332. We're looking at Isaiah chapter 11. Isaiah is the most prolific writer of the Old Testament who gives uh, testimony or prophecy of the coming Messiah. 600 years before Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Isaiah writes uh, voluminous uh, 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 descriptions of what Christ would be like. And he does so here in Isaiah chapter 11. And we're going to begin right at the top in verse 1. And this this idea of a shoot from the stump of Jesse, let me explain that real fast. He's saying that at some point, David, King David, the legendary king of Israel, was Jesse's son. And, and he's saying there's going to come a time in the history of Israel when that tree of David's kingdom will be cut off. And it'll be just left as a stump. But he says that stump isn't, isn't over. That stump will still produce life. Listen, he says, there shall come forth for a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch, and his fruit shall bear fruit. Now, real quick, verse 1, who is he talking about? Help me out. Who's he talking about? Jesus. He's talking about Christ. And listen to verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on upon him. The Spirit of... Wisdom and understanding. We've heard those words, haven't we? The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge. And get this, the fear of the Lord. Now read just the first part of verse 3. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Now, that's how Jesus' first arrival, his incarnation, was was prophesied. And what on earth does that have to do with you and I in the 21st century? It has everything to do with us. Everything. Listen, you cannot understand what Christ has done in his death, his resurrection, and his ascension based only on the basis of the forgiveness of your sins alone. If you say, you know, what, what did Jesus do when he came, he died, he rose again, he ascended to, to the right hand of the Father? What does all that mean? Well, it means that my sins are forgiven, I don't have to go to hell. It does mean that. We'd never deny that, but there, it means so much more. Do you want to see that from the lips of Jesus himself? Look at John 16, 7. Jesus is talking about his, talking to his disciples. He's giving them for them the sad news that he will soon be departing. And in John 16, 7, he says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, he's speaking here of the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. But if I go... I will send him to you. Now, why does the fact that the spirit would rest on Jesus, spirit of wisdom and understanding and knowledge and might and counsel, why does that matter? Because the same spirit that rested upon Jesus has been granted by him to you so that you might have insight into God's wisdom into God's understanding, into his counsel, into his might, 
into his knowledge that you might return to the fear of Yahweh. Regardless of your sins, regardless of your rebellions, when you repent and believe the gospel, you can return to the fear of Yahweh. And you can find your delight in the holy reverence, the honor and the, and the awe of his majesty. Stop saying, listen to me, everyone listen to me. Stop saying that you cannot know the will of the Lord. Stop saying that you cannot understand the scriptures. That's for smarter people and more educated people than you. Stop saying it. Because if you say that, if you say that, if you insist on that, you might as well say that you don't have the Holy Spirit within you to illuminate your heart, to hear and to receive, to counsel and to comfort you. And the last thing you want to say as an alleged believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is that you do not have the Holy Spirit. Because Paul tells us this, you, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If, in fact, the Spirit of God dwells in you. Now listen carefully. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you're a believer, if you are a believer, you have the Holy Spirit to instruct and to guide you. And you can trust in His sovereignty. You can trust in His providence. If ever, if, if after last week's message, you were listening to last week's message and you discerned that you're not walking in the fear of the Lord as you should, repentance begins like this. It begins with an acknowledgement that it is the indwelling Holy Spirit's job to mold and convict your heart and to realign your desires to return to the fear of the Lord. Ask Him, ask Him, plead with Him to work within you to cause you to delight in the fear of the Lord. Now, this reference to Jesus and what I just appealed to you to do may strike you as completely odd. It it strikes you as odd that the Scriptures should speak of delighting in the fear of the Lord. You may have lived several decades now, but we don't usually connect the concepts of fear and delight. This guy tried to break into my house the other day with a machete. It was the most delightful thing I ever experienced. We don't say things like that, do we? No. The, the, we don't connect the concepts of fear and delight. It may surprise you to discover, however, when we consider the fear of the Lord... That most of the references in scripture to the fear of Yahweh, most of them are associated with clear blessings to us or they they are attached to promises. Isn't that interesting? And if that's true, why wouldn't we find all of our delight in fearing the Lord? So let's spend some time now looking at some examples of this in the pages of the Bible. So we see first that... Salvation is promised to those who walk in the fear of the Lord. Psalm 85, 9. Surely his salvation is near to those who fear him. That glory may dwell in our land. It is an absurdity to imagine that anyone could truly be saved who does not fear, who does not honor, reverence, and stand in holy awe of the Lord. Last week we spoke of how Proverbs 8.13 says that the fear of the Lord is defined as the hatred of evil. When Christ 
finds us, make no mistake about it, when he found you, when he found me, believe this, we were invariably in love with our sin. We loved it. We did not love God. We, we, were, we hated God. We were enemies of God. But we loved our sin. We pursued our sin. We were living for ourselves. And Paul says that those who are apart from Christ have no fear of God before their eyes. He's quoting there directly from Psalm 31.6. Job goes on to say that the definition of understanding is to turn away from evil. But unfortunately, here's the bad news. To turn away from evil, to hate evil, is impossible for us to do unless the Holy Spirit takes the initiative to awaken us to our need for grace that is only found in Jesus Christ alone. When we begin to truly fear the Lord, we're assured that He has called us to salvation. When we're regenerated by the Holy Spirit and are subsequently converted to a life of faith, we progressively begin to obey Christ's commands, which leads to life everlasting. But none of this is possible while we live under the delusion, because that's what it is, that we are wise in ourselves. So you see how God shows his salvation not to those who, in the exercise of their wills, decide to submit to him, but to those who, through the awakening of the grace revealed in Jesus, live in the fear, the holy fear of Yahweh. But there's more. Not only is God's salvation given to those who fear him, but God's protecting and preserving hand is upon those who fear the Lord. Psalm thirty-three, eighteen: Behold, the eye of the Lord is upon those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love. We see that also uh, in the very next chapter of Psalms, we see that angelic assistance is promised to those who fear God. The angel of the Lord, Psalm 34, 7 says, encamps around those who fear him and he delivers them. Now, although I think this verse rightly refers to the divine intervention of God's angelic army on behalf of the heirs of salvation, it also refers to the strong deliverance and help that Jesus himself provides us. Throughout the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, God promises that he will send his angel before the children of Israel to guide, protect, and instruct them. But when you read those verses, there's something unique and interesting about this angel. He, he has a name. It's the angel of the Lord. And this angel is given the authority and the wisdom of God himself. And this leads most theologians to believe that the angel of the Lord in the, in the writings of Moses was a Christophany. In other words, it was an Old Testament uh, a picture of Jesus, that it was a, a, a representation or an appearance of Jesus in the Old Testament. And why wouldn't the promise that the angel of the Lord encamps around those who fear the Lord be embraced by us as a promise that the presence of Jesus would always accompany us to guide, to guide us and to protect us. Aren't our hearts comforted by this reality, even by Christ's own parting words? After he gave his apostles the great commission on the Mount of Olives, right before his ascension, he said this. He said, and behold, I am with you Always, even unto the end of the age. But not only does our Lord promise his salvation, 
and his presence and his protection to those who righteously fear his name. He also promises his provision to them as well. Psalm 34, 9. Oh, fear the Lord, you his saints, for those who fear him have no lack. What confidence is given to those who trust in the Lord and fear his name? Now, when we use a scripture like this, especially from behind this pulpit, this is no pathetic prosperity gospel twisting of sacred scripture that ensures petulant religious babies that all of their demands will be met by some heavenly genie in a bottle. That is not what the scripture is referring to. But rather, much more confidence building It's the unwavering guarantee that God's chosen and adopted children will have all of their needs richly supplied. Those who have no reference for God, no reverence for God, have have no such assurance. They're deprived of it, as a matter of fact. Even when we feel like we don't have the things that we wish for, or wish we had, or what we have seems like not enough... The beauty of a promise like this is that we can trust our Father that He has never, listen to me carefully, He has never either withheld or or never not given us anything that is less than His best because He knows best and promises in Romans 8.28 that He's working all things together for our good. Psalm 84.11 says, For the Lord God is a sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Walking in the fear of the Lord means gratefully and thankfully believing that verse we just read. It means that recognizing that whatever we receive from God's hand in this life is for our flourishing. It's for our sanctification. It's for our growing It's for our eternal good. Now, there are many, many more promises in Scripture associated with the fear of God. But let's just look at one more. God promises life to those who fear Him. Proverbs 14.27 says this, The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. The one may turn away from the snares of death. Now, the Hebrew translated here as life is more accurately understood as living. So the fear of the Lord is a fountain of living. It signifies life with a purpose, not just the the, the function of your brain and lungs and the pumping of your blood through your heart, all those things. It signifies life with a purpose, a meaningful life. As sinners, as people born in sin, rescued from sin, as sinners... Think about it. Death pervades every single aspect of our life. Every part of it. The youngest, most healthy infants in our midst this morning, sadly, are only marking off time until their deaths. The only thing that we know for certain about their futures is that they, like you and I, will someday die. But sin applies to much more than just our our mortality, rather. Our good works are at best dead works, the Bible says. Our greatest dreams will come to nothing at our deaths. And this 
is much the theme of Solomon's other work in Scripture, the book of Ecclesiastes. But the Bible refers to the life that we discover through the gospel as that which is truly life. This life is an illusion that is passing and fading and the clock is always ticking. But what I find in the gospel, what I find by placing my trust in Christ Jesus, is life that is truly life. What I clutch to and cling to and pursue in this life, I will only find in the bosom of Christ alone. That's where life really is. This is the kind of life that is only found in the grace of Jesus Christ, who said, if you'll recall John 14, 6, I am the way, and I am the truth, and I am the life. And it's only accessible to us, this life is only accessible through the fear of of Yahweh, which the Holy Spirit empowers, instills, and stirs up in us as we respond to God's call to surrender to Him. It's a kind of life that lasts through eternity. Even if our mortal life here is cut short, and no unbeliever, not one in all the world, has any such promise The truest words that have ever been spoken outside of the scriptures are these. You can't take it with you. The truest words ever spoken. A sinner may live a long life. Well past a hundred. He may amass a vast fortune. But when it is gone, when he is gone, that fortune just passes to another. And the cycle starts all over again. But the life that God bestows on those who fear Him never vanishes and it never diminishes. It enlivens every part of our existence, both here and hereafter. If we could lose Christ or His steadfast love, we might have genuine reason to fear loss. But since that's impossible, we have every reason to walk in the assurance that we are safe and secure. We live because He lives. Amen? As a point of application, I want to end today by giving you one more diagnostic tool from Scripture to analyze your life so that you are walking, to know if you're walking in the fear of the Lord or to know if perhaps, even if you're a believer, you might have fallen spiritually asleep or perhaps you may be here and you remain dead in your sins. One way we can determine where we are if we are truly walking in the fear of the Lord is simply by watching our lives and discovering what it is we really fear. And in order to do that, we have to begin by acknowledging two absolute and absolutely critically vital truths. The first truth is this. No one fears the Lord perfectly. No one does. There's no pastor who fears the Lord. Your, your grandma, I know that's going to shock most of you, does not fear the Lord perfectly. And this is why, this is the beauty of what I said earlier. This is why the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. He convicts us and He daily aligns our hearts to come closer to the holiness that may at any given moment consume us or terrify us. Even though we look into that fearful majesty, think of Moses looking at the burning bush 
And he is, he is compelled somehow, even though he's terrified, he's compelled to come closer. This is what the Holy Spirit does to us when we gaze into the holiness of God. Because of what Christ has made possible, he's given us access behind the veil. He calls us closer to the holiness of God. And this is what sanctification is all about. The Holy Spirit is not sanctifying you to make you a more respectable citizen. The Lions Club can do that. You don't need the Holy Spirit to make you a more respectable citizen. What you need is the Holy Spirit to conform you to the image of Christ. That's what sanctification is all about. He, he convicts us of our lack of the fear of God. He draws our gaze to Christ's piercing eyes because it's only by beholding Him that we have any chance of becoming like Him. This is straight from 2 Corinthians 3.18. And we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. Unveiled face here means that we don't avert our gaze or shield our eyes from His holiness, but we look at Him in His Word and we see our sin, we see our apathy, we see our need, and instead of fleeing from Him, we fall on our face and cry out for transformation. None of us, not one of us, is spiritual enough, is holy enough to bear to look upon Him without the Spirit's help. Nobody could do it. He's too holy. Now, some of you are here today and you think you're looking at him, but you're looking at him through religious works. And that's only to glance at him casually behind sin-darkened glasses. And it dims his glory. But can you pull those glasses off and look directly at him, Can you not make excuses for what you read in the word, but stand under it in the strength of the covenant you have with Christ and the empowering of the Holy Spirit? Can you look at him and realize that you're actually becoming like him as you behold him? Well, that's the first thing we need to consider, that none of us fear the Lord perfectly, but God has provided a remedy for that. The second thing we must acknowledge is this. Some of us get real comfortable, uncomfortable with this one, but we have to acknowledge this. Every single one of us at every point of our lives fears something. All of us do. And this applies to the toughest barroom brawler, the most foul-mouthed, you know, uh, taking no nonsense off of nobody type of guy. It applies to him. But it also, once again, applies to the most quiet and saintly Grandmother, all of us fear something. And this just goes with the territory of being a sinner. We're so afraid to confess what we fear. But it's an important question. What is it this morning, sitting here at Northridge Life Church on this Sunday, what is it that you fear? And will you allow the Holy Spirit to help you answer that question? And is the answer to that question that you fear God? Or is it that you fear something else? Perhaps you fear men's opinions. Perhaps you fear their rejection. 
their misunderstanding, their even their insults or their persecution. You may not fear them here when we're all singing loudly and we're talking about the scriptures, but do you fear them at work? Do you fear them at school? Do you fear them among your family or in your neighborhood? The Holy Spirit is illuminating your heart to see that you do fear men. Beware. Be very careful because the Bible tells us this in Proverbs twenty nine twenty five: The fear of man lays a snare. You see, the, the fear of man is just like the fear of the Lord in Scripture. It has a distinct promise associated with it. And if you walk in the fear of man, the Bible tells you, you will be trapped. But it has another promise in this passage. Whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. So if an honest analysis of your life highlights that you have trembled before mere human beings and their voices today, not this afternoon, not this evening, before we leave this place, repent earnestly and ask the Holy Spirit to unclog the wells and open new fountains of the fear of God within you. Drink deeply of His glory and begin with His help to fear no one but God. What glorious promises we've seen this morning await those who walk in the fear of the Lord. Knowledge, wisdom, salvation, protection, provision, life. May we be those who increasingly show a watching world that we fear only Yahweh. Would you stand with me? And let's pray. As I said last week, this morning, I I want you to just, as many of you that, that by the Holy Spirit's empowering have the courage to do so, I just want you to bow your heads, close your eyes, and ask the Lord to examine you. Ask Him what it is you fear. Don't deny it. It's between you and Jesus, but you ask Him what it is you fear. And let him show you all the traps and snares that are associated with fearing anything but God. Perhaps you fear the future. Perhaps you fear the degradation of your health or your finances. Perhaps you fear the loss of a relationship. And again, perhaps you just fear mere human beings. But recognize it. Confess it. Confess your faults. Tell the Lord your lack, because He already knows. He's the one that's showing it to you. And ask Him to restore you to the true fear of the Lord. That deeply reverential honor and awe that the Holy Spirit wants to instill in you. Heavenly Father, that is all of our cry today. Lord, as we said, no one fears the Lord perfectly. And Lord, we are a room full of examples of that. God, I pray that you would just move on our hearts to cause us to delight in the fear of the Lord. To not just grudgingly try to fear you, but Lord, to delight in it. To delight in the fear of the Lord as 
as a, a, a child would delight in his in his father who who loves and and both gives discipline. God, we delight in you. Help it to be our confession. Holy Spirit, do the work that you need to do in revealing and drawing, softening us. We thank you for all of this. In Jesus' precious name, amen. In that song we sing, he'll give himself nothing I'll bring. And that is the core of the gospel. That none of us bring anything, none of us have any merit to win the favor of 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 Christ, but he has given us all. Anything that we talked about today that demands or cries out for transformation in us, it will always be because Christ has given it to us and not because we white-knuckled our way through and figured out how to fear God. No, no, no. It's going to be because Christ has graciously given to us all things by his grace. And one of the symbols of that is the Lord's Supper, which we take weekly here at Northridge and and once again, we have an opportunity to experience uh, with our eyes and seeing these elements, holding them in our hands, tasting them with our lips and tongues. And we, and we see that Christ has not withheld anything. He gave us his very body and blood so that we could be transformed into his image, one from sin, one from the darkness which we once indwelt. And for those of you who have have discovered that, through the calling of God and through the, the truth of the scriptures and, and, and through your own belief in the gospel and repentance, then we want to invite you to come and receive these elements and partake them as a renewal of your covenant with Christ and let the Holy Spirit reunite, uh, uh, unite you with the resurrected Jesus this morning. For those of you who have not done that, who who still are, have questions about the Christian life and the truth of the gospel, then we're going to ask you to remain where you're at, not because we want to single you out or withhold something from you, but we want you to understand that this is a an everything commitment that, that comes from saying, I, my life is done, I am through, may Christ be all and I be nothing. And and there is nothing more beautiful that you'll ever do. But so if you have questions about that, we want the highest priority after the service is to talk to you if you have questions about that. Pastor Gabriel, Pastor David, myself would love to talk to you about that. And so we can do that. But more than that, we want you to know we're praying for you. Before we have any services here, we pray for those who don't know Christ that they would not um, continue in that state, but they would come to know him. And so for the rest of you, however, who can so gladly celebrate this ordinance, and I want to invite you to come and receive the elements and take them back to your seat, and we'll take them together in just a moment. The way the Gospel writer Matthew commemorates what we're about to celebrate. He, he tells us this story. He says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to his disciples. And he said, Take and eat. This is my body. Let's partake of the bread together. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is the blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. And I tell you that I will not again drink of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Let's partake of the cup together. 
Now let's give thanks. Father, thank you so much for the gift of Jesus. Jesus, thank you so much for your obedient laying down your life to to do the will of your Father and make us all part of the fellowship uh, of heaven. And, And God, we thank you for that. Holy Spirit, thank you that you found us and you applied the work of Jesus to our lives so that we could be saved. And we thank you for this, God. We pray that you would help us this week to walk in joy in your covenant and in the fear of the Lord. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would place your hands in a receiving position, I want to pronounce this benediction over you as we go. Second Corinthians 7.1 says, Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of the Lord. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit, Amen. You are dismissed.